The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is no substitute for professional care by your doctor or your qualified healthcare professional. Never disregard or delay professional medical advice because of something you've heard on this podcast or in any linked material. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Dr. Shirley neither endorses nor opposes any particular opinion discussed on this podcast. The views expressed on this podcast have no relation to those of any academic, hospital, practice, institution, or other entity with which Dr. Shirley may be affiliated. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast on fashion, the art of living, and all things beauty. This podcast is curated by Dr. Shirley Madea, MD, as the definitive source of holistic wellness through beauty. The Forever Fab podcast values truth and authenticity. We encourage our guests to show up exactly as they are, as the best version of themselves. Please note, this podcast episode contains adult language. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome to Forever Fab, the podcast dedicated to fashion, the art of living well, and all things beauty. I'm your host, Dr. Shirley Madare the founder of the Holistic Plastic Surgery Philosophy, and your purveyor of this definitive source of living a beautiful life. In this podcast, we like to have intelligent and fun discussions around some of the things that we love and that move us with joy, namely fashion, art, wellness, and the many faces of beauty. We keep it refreshing and real, educational but entertaining, scientific and fantastic. This week's episode is dedicated to the relentless pursuit of dreams and fulfillment. A purpose-driven life in fashion. How to fearlessly pursue your dreams. That's today's topic, and this is my interview with Rebecca Minkoff. The inimitable Rebecca Minkoff is a formidable force. She is as strong, confident, and powerful as the women for whom she designs. At the age of 18, when she moved to New York City to pursue her dream of becoming a fashion designer, her eponymous fashion brand was launched in 2001. It has grown to be an epic brand that has grown to be a global fashion empire of accessible women's clothing, handbags, accessories, jewelry, fragrance, and footwear. Rebecca is an active advocate in the fashion industry and a fierce supporter of women in business. She is also an active member of the CFDA, the Council of Fashion Designers of America, and supports multiple philanthropies. 2018 was a notable year for the unstoppable creative. That year, she launched a podcast, Super Women with Rebecca Minkoff, which focuses on women's incredible stories of resilience, failure, and success. Also that year, Rebecca established the Female Founder Collective, a network of businesses led by women who invest in women's financial power across a socioeconomic spectrum by enabling and empowering female-owned businesses. This organization has now over 9,000 members and has supported women-owned businesses by giving them access to education, networks, and mentorship. 
Companies in this collective have gone on to raise over $15 million in seed funding and taken their companies to higher levels of success. Rebecca is here with us today via Zoom to tell us about her journey and efforts to help make business a more fashionable, diverse, equitable, and inclusive space. Welcome, Rebecca, and thank you for becoming a member of the Forever Fab Beautiful community. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and share the tales. All right, let's get let's let's go in. <laughs> Rebecca, what's your story? Where did you grow up and how did you get your first point of traction in life so that you knew where you were going and what you wanted to do? So um, I think that point hit me pretty early on. I was about eight years old when I just assumed that if I said I wanted said dress in store window, that mother would purchase it for me. And her answer was, no, you could probably make that. And I was really frustrated and annoyed as any eight-year-old might be. Um, I just wanted her to buy me that damn dress. Right. Uh, But she said, I'll teach you how to sew. So she whipped out her mom's um, old Singer sewing machine from the 1800s. It was like two generations old. And I was like, you're going to teach me to sew on that thing? Um, and you know, I made a pillowcase, I made all the first, you know, sewing one-on-one things. And I got really excited about the fact that I could think about something, get inspired, have an idea and then make it. And so when I earned enough money to buy my own sewing machine, that was a little bit more modern. Um, it just became a passion of mine. And it was something that for me, you know, not necessarily being the most popular or having all the friends. Like I just, it was like me and my machine and I could go thrifting all day and then get home and cut everything up and create something new with it. So for me, it was a huge source of passion. And when it came time to figure out, okay, what do I want to do with my life? I said, I think I want to try fashion. I think that seems like the the logical step since I've been doing that for so long. That's pretty incredible. You know, we often hear about a man and his dog, but you were a woman with your machine. (laughs) That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And your mother was not only your mother and your mentor, and obviously she helped to guide you and she's an, you know, was your angel for doing that. But um, yeah, she showed you the way. Totally. And she, she showed it through a lot of tough love, which is, um, is not easy because as a mother, I want to not be tough loving, but it works. So got to do it. Got to do it. There you have it. Well, what motivated you after you decided to come to become um, a fashion designer? What motivated you to come to New York City? Because that's not where you were born, right? Definitely not. I was born in San Diego. Um, and then we were transplants to Florida for about eight years before I hightailed it out of there <laughs> at the age of <clears throat> 18. Um, and I, my brother had gotten home one evening from a party and had the phone number of a designer he'd met. And I called up the designer. And I was like, do you have interns? And he's like, yeah, sure. When do you want to be here? Wow. <laughs> Uh, which is not a typical how a typical interview goes. And I definitely got the side eye of the CEO when I arrived. And she said to me, she became an incredible friend of mine. But her first words to me were like, oh, you're just another dumb, pretty girl that showed up because, you know, he he's on the road, you know, selling his goods most of the year. He doesn't know who he's hiring. And now I'm stuck with you. And I was like, I'm going to prove you wrong, lady. And, uh, you know, she's who I credit helping me get started. Would you consider her a mentor, even though, I mean, that was another form of tough love, right? Like, oh, 
here we go again. It's, it's just you. But would you now, or even back then, consider her a mentor when you look back in retrospect? I, I like to, sometimes people hear the word mentor and they think it's someone that's going to hand them success on a silver platter or give them their whole story. And somehow from that, they're able to replicate that path. So yeah. she wasn't a mentor in that definition, but she was someone who was very much like, I'm going to show, I'm going to make sure that when you're working here, cause they eventually, <clears throat> I demanded they hire me after six months, uh, <laughs> had me work in every single part of the company. So oh. she had me work in logistics. She had me work in shipping and finance and PR. And so I got to learn all these things. So by her doing that, it prepared me uh, so that when she did fire me, I was able to go, okay, I know something, you yeah. know, I, I'm not totally naive here about the business. Well, that's very interesting because I like what you said about being a mentor. Um, that isn't always necessarily a pleasant thing. And it sounds as if she really put you to work and it was laborious and it was rigorous. So if we loosely say that that labor and hard work and that rigor was tantamount to just a little bit of adversity, it was actually through adversity in quotes that you became even better. Yeah. And I think that people are scared of that. You know, I think in this society where you get to just go like, oh, my order's here and oh, my yeah. groceries and my car. People yeah. are like, where's my career? It, I keep tapping and it's not happening. Yeah. You know? And so I think that adversity is what forges you mm. and makes you stronger and makes you think differently and overcome these challenges. Because let's face it, life isn't easy yeah. for anybody. And unless you know how to react to that adversity, right. you're, you, you have to be prepared for it. Right. I'm, I'm with you there, sister, because believe me, you and I share that in common. <laughs> you attended FIT. Um, what was your most valuable aspect of your education there at the Fashion Institute of Technology? So I had already started interning and my internship was all day, every day. And my aunt, who's very traditional, my mom's sister was like, you've got to go to college. Like, you're not going to succeed without college, like mm. freaking out. And she, <laughs> she lived in Long Island. And so I would occasionally take the train out to go get a free meal. And I was <laughs> like, maybe I'm making a big mistake by not going to college. I'll enroll in night school and see what happens. And I'll mm -hmm. do a couple of courses. And so after the first semester... I was like, I, I'm not anti-college, but I can't do this. And yeah. I feel like I've already done so much and I have the job and they've you know, hired me. Like, I got to go with that path. And yep. so the thing that I took from it was if you don't have that opportunity and you didn't get the leg up that I did by spending my transformative years in high school designing, pattern making, draping, learning all that stuff, yep. it would have been a great thing. But I felt like so much of what I was being taught, I had already learned. And I just was like, I can't do this. I got to go. Yeah. Well, kudos to you for being authentic to your truth, right? And not necessarily following a path that someone else says it's something you have to do. So yeah, good for you. Um, that being said, <laughs> how did you acquire the business savvy, the business education and the funding to launch your own line? Well, I'll definitely say that the business savvy and education was 100% learned on my own failings. Uh, um, the money that I used to launch 
back in 2001 was a small apparel line. I had $10,000 that I had saved Mm -hmm. uh, through bat mitzvahs and birthdays, what have you. (laughs) And that was what I used. And I spent it all in the wrong way. Wow. Um, So I I learned that lesson fast. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. I don't need to, I don't need to buy all that extra fabric when I don't have a single order or, you know, I spent it on stuff that I, I didn't know well. Um, and so the first four years were truly a struggle. And when I decided then to have a bag, let me back up. The first four years were quite a struggle. So, but I was able to pay my rent and eat, uh, by also styling on the side. So that kept me afloat barely. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I launched the bag and that took off, um, I could see that there was a power in what that was and what that meant to women that I was like, okay, now I need some real money. Like I don't yeah. have this. So I went yeah. to my dad. That was call number one. He politely declined. <laughs> call number two was the brother who had some success as a software. He had a software company. And so the original loan was $2,000 and then it was $10,000. And then big money requests started. And he was like, he is a, he's a very savvy businessman and he could see that this was taking off. So we couldn't get a loan. Um, he mortgaged his house. Wow. He maxed, he maxed out his credit cards. Um, and you know, we did that until we could finally get a bank to take us seriously. So I, I know a lot of people are so resistant to family and friends funding you, but I, I, I think sometimes that's the best form of capital in the beginning, yeah. as long as your relationship doesn't go up in flames, because <laughs> sometimes you're not ready to take on what it means to be given venture capital money or private equity money. And so um, that, that early seed funding is, it should be with people that can love and support you through the, through the hard and scary times. That is serious love from your brother. That's amazing. <laughs> now, I, to your point, a lot of people are a bit nervous about going into business with family. Um, what's your best advice for doing business with family? My best advice is that you have to upfront lay down some ground rules for how you're going to treat each other because you're going to spend more time with that person than any loved one. And you can get under each other's skin in a way that no one else is capable of. And so you have to almost ensure that there are barriers to that ability. And we're not perfect. We get under each other's skin all the time. But I think at the end of the day, sometimes it's also helpful to have a mediator, which we've hired many times to sort of (laughs) give us some couples counseling and and make sure that we're following the rules that we had agreed to. Right. And did you both have to sign like official legal paperwork and documents? Did you do that as, as one of your boundaries? You mean with what we've agreed to, like how we treat each other? Yes. We've definitely signed. I don't know if they're legally binding. Like I can't <laughs> sue him if he sends me a mean text on a Saturday morning, but we've definitely, um, we've definitely sign and issue each other written agreements of this is how we're going to behave. And if the other one doesn't, we can call each other out on it. Okay, good. Accountability both ways. Yeah. And you're designed for women uh, and a particular kind of woman, if I may say. She's strong. She's confident. So in, in, your, in your words, who exactly is she and how did you find that sweet spot of a target demographic, if you will? I think she found me. Mm. And then I said, oh, I, I have to hope there's more of you. Let me go searching. Um, we were originally, uh, at the time, it was considered an extraordinarily um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know why I can't talk. Uh, at the time <laughs> when we launched, our prices were very affordable at that time. Yes. Four ninety five, five ninety five. The contemporary bag arena was just starting. Yes. Prior to that, you could buy a bag at Target for twenty dollars, mm-hmm. or you could buy something at Chanel for five thousand. So to get a right. bag that was well made, beautiful leather, incredible hardware for five hundred bucks was the steal of a century. But <laughs> that was two thousand five. The recession hit in two thousand eight, and that same woman was like, "Well, I don't have that kind of money anymore, and I probably won't again in my life." So we really took a huge risk and we lowered our prices, not because we wanted to, but because we knew and saw what was coming. Yeah. And then that's when she said, okay, good. I can buy my bag. I can eat dinner. I can yeah. pay my rent. Um, and so that's where she found us. And, and then, you know, we, we just kept seeing an ever expanding vista of women who don't want to forsake, um, you know, luxury for right. their essentials that they need. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic because I really do believe that you've cornered the market early on of um, accessible luxury. So okay. we like to call it, you know, we're the oh. first leg up when you're ready for your first, you know, big luxurious purchase. We want to yeah. be that brand for you. When you're done with fast fashion, you're like, okay, it's time to make an investment. That's, that's who we want to be. Yeah. So speaking of fast fashion, um, sustainability seems to be trending, if I may say so. Um, it seems to be trending in fashion now. Everyone is, is talking about, you know, the earth and can fashions actually truly heal the planet? How may we integrate sustainability and healing the planet with being fashionable? How There's so many that? ways. First and foremost, anyone is welcome to fact check the statement I'm about to make, but the <laughs> biggest contributors to waste in the fashion industry are fast fashion makers the Forever 21s, the Zara's, the H&M's, the amount of waste and or unfair practices and working conditions Mm. as another whole subject, they are the biggest producers. So if you want that impulsive buy, tame it, save that money and spend it on independent designers, dare I say women, (laughs) who have independent brands that are not mass produced, that don't clog and glut the landfills with inventory that's you know, never going to sell. So that is the biggest way to make impact is stop buying fast fashion. Um, And second of all, there are so many designers that are doing incredible jobs where they are really ensuring that from beginning to end, they're sustainable. Um, We are moving in that direction. We're not even close to being 100% there, but we're trying and we just launched a sustainable uh, collection of apparel. Um, and I'm attacking my supply chain like a rabid dog. Good. Every time I unpack my bags, I'm like, more plastic. How do I get this out? You know, so yeah. I'm definitely on it. And it's easier said than done. But of I course. think you, you're seeing a lot of brands really take it to heart. Um, and so I think it's only going to be demanded of by the consumer. Right. I applaud you for doing that, actually. I, I do think it's important. And, and like you, every time I get my dry cleaning back, which is rare, I don't dry clean as often as I used to, every time I see plastic or even, you know, paper in between each layer of of clothing, I'm like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? So I applaud yeah. you for doing that. And I must say, um, this is I know, I uh, Rebecca Minkoff. <laughs> and not only that, those puff sleeve sweatshirts. Yes. Okay, I'm not going to embarrass myself by telling you how many I have and how many colors, but they have been everything for me this past year. So thank you. 
You're welcome. They're like Skittles, you know, we oh have the rainbow gosh. of colors. Fabulous, fabulous. And you know that they're cheery and they're comfortable. So it's, yeah. it's a- now you've clearly be- gone beyond the so-called, you know, traditional rules of business. And you wrote a book called Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage and Success, which I have pre-ordered, but it will be out this summer, correct? Yes. June 15th is is, uh, launch day. Great. I'll write that down. So can you please give us a brief synopsis of why you wrote the book and um, basically what it's about? So I was reflecting last January at being in business for 15 years and sort of wanting to take a moment to pause and sort of write that journey down. But as I did that, I began to see that we had broken a lot of rules. We had to redefine so much for our on our own in order to succeed in fashion. And um, I think it was important for me to not only write a book that would be mildly entertaining or hopefully entertaining, <laughs> but also something that you could learn from and apply to your life. I think fear can stop so many people from succeeding and halting them from pursuing their dreams. They're scared of failure. They're scared to take risks. You know, they're, they don't feel courage. And so how could you sort of retrain your method of thinking to recognize fear, but not let it stop you? Perfect. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait for you to read it. (laughs) You've just listened to part one of Forever Fab podcast. Please stay tuned for part two coming up next.